1: Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my Talk Radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe.
3: Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio.
1: Right now, delighted to welcome the Health Minister, Edward Argar, to the show. Good morning Chief sir.
0: Good morning, Julie. How good are you? Good morning.
1: Very well indeed. Um, I hope, well, rather a lot better, I imagine, than Boris Johnson. But do you have an update on his condition this morning for us?
0: Well, no, the update is the one that uh, Downing Street has, has already put out, which is that he is in a stable and comfortable condition. He's in good spirits. Um, as you will have heard yesterday, he had some oxygen given to him, but he's not on a ventilator. And I'm sure that, like all the people who've been uh, emailing me, my constituents and others, and indeed the whole, and the whole country, We are wishing him and Carrie all the best and a very swift and full recovery for him. And can I just be a little bit cheeky and just say one other thing, if I may, which is in parallel with that, a big thank you to all of the amazing staff at St Thomas's who are looking after him, but who are also looking after many, many other people. And that goes for our social care staff, pharmacists, NHS staff around the country who are doing amazing things to look after people. So thank you for letting me say a little thank you there.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we we all echo that. Thank you to our amazing healthcare staff and and all the others who, who are who are caring people. Bearing in mind that obviously, although we're very much focused on Boris Johnson, there are thousands of other people and thousands of other families going mm. through this uh, right now. Let, let's talk though about how soon he could be back at work. Uh, there's some talking with Boris. Uh, sorry, Dominic Robb said yesterday he would be back at work in short order. We know he's conscious. We know he's in good spirits, as you say. Um, but uh, there are some saying he could be back, uh, you know, not for a month or even two months, depending on how the virus affects it, uh, some claims today that there's a vacuum of power at the top of government is there
0: well firstly i think he will be back as soon as he can be but that'll be a decision for his doctors but you know him i know him he's a colleague a friend that i've worked with over many years he's tough he's a fighter and as soon as he can be and his doctors tell him he can be i know he'll be very keen to be back at work but i don't think i wouldn't characterize what's happening at the moment in the way that you did he set a very clear strategy for this government he's still the prime minister and he's asked while he's in hospital that uh, dom who is an extremely able colleague um, deputizes for him on that so uh, i don't see any any vacuum or anything like that we have in this country a system of cabinet government the government the cabinets are united behind the strategy that the pm has set out and we're all just getting on with delivering on that
1: um, now, in terms of the lockdown, we know that uh, obviously when it was announced almost, uh, well, well, I mean, two and a half weeks ago, that there was a, a, an announcement that it would be three weeks that before there would be a review. Now, I think we all know, realistically, it's not going to be lifted after three weeks. It's not going to even be relaxed after three weeks. We're expecting to be hitting uh, the peak uh, around Easter Sunday, Easter Monday. Um, is there going to be, though, some announcement? Are we expecting some announcement in the wake of the figures we do get over the Easter weekend of, of a likelihood of the time frame that we'll be living under lockdown? Well as
0: Dom said yesterday we will as we have been throughout be guided by the scientific evidence and the scientific advice. You're absolutely right um, about touching on when that peak may or may not be but we don't know yet. We had from the Chief Scientific Advisor yesterday some positive news, some little hints of positive news that the rate of rise appeared to be slowing but I'd caution as he did not to read too much into one set of figures. So he and the Chief Medical Officer have said they're not yet in a position to say with certainty um, when that peak will be reached and therefore when changes might be made and so the message remains very clear at the moment those uh, rules remain firmly in place the message to everyone however nice this easter weekend is is stay at home protect the nhs and, stay, uh, and save lives and now is the time when it just appears that this structure is beginning to show um data points that show it appears to be beginning to be uh, coming through in that slowing of the rate. Now's the time to really double down and hold to this strategy, hold to the commitment we all have to following those rules.
1: And The Guardian today on their front page have got a headline, UK facing highest death toll in Europe. This is a report by data analysts in Seattle, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, predicting 66,000 UK deaths from COVID-19 by August, a peak of nearly 3,000 a day. They say we could be the country worst hit by the pandemic in Europe, accounting for more than 40 percent of total deaths across the continent. What do you make of that report?
0: Well, what I, make, I read that and on my way uh, to interview before I talked to you, as it were, I read the papers. This morning, I flipped through them on my phone and I read that article. And I think at the bottom of that article, you'll see Professor Neil Ferguson, one of our uh, eminent scientists, one of our key advisors, has disputed the modelling behind it and says that's not a, uh, a picture he recognises from the modelling and the data and the cases we're getting in this country. So all contributions to this debate from learned journals, from Academic institutions are really important because one of the ways we'll beat this virus is by sharing information and that scientific debate. But as I say, one of our leading experts, if I recall the article correctly um, from an hour or two ago, has set out that he would dispute that and he doesn't recognise those figures.
1: I'm just looking at that quote from Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College. Yes, yeah. indeed. Now, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer yesterday, it's lovely to see him back at work in the last few days. Um, he said the UK has a lot to learn from Germany when it comes to testing as a route out of the virus lockdown. And they were ahead of us on this. We know that ministers are preparing to call in biotech companies to work together to make a home antibody test as part of that, uh, that exit strategy uh, from lockdown. Um, why has it proved so difficult to come up with an antibody test? We know it's a new virus. We know there's obviously pressure there. We're not, we couldn't have one Sitting there ready to go for a virus that wasn't even known about. But why is it proving so hard when there are so many billions, even trillions, around the world being poured into this by governments and by private companies?
0: Well, I think you put your finger on it, Julian. I, I'm no scientist or clinician, um, so I don't necessarily, I'm not an expert on the science behind these tests. But what I do know is that, as you say, this is an entirely new disease. So we're learning about the disease in real time and then following that we're having to and our scientists i would argue they're the best in the world um are having to try and come up with a test but then you've got to test those tests as it were to make sure they do the job and that they are reliable and as the chief medical officer said i think a couple of weeks ago when i uh, just before i last spoke to you on your program um no test is better than a bad test and i think what he meant by that is Um, If a test is put in place and it doesn't do the job and isn't reliable, it could create a false sense of security. So you've got to test the tests to make sure they work. That can be a, a process that takes a bit of time. That's frustrating for everyone because we want to get on with this. But it's important that the scientists can get on with their work and say, we've got something that really works. So they're working at pace. They're working flat out to do this. But in a sense, they will say when they think they've got that reliable test that will make such a difference.
3: Online. On DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
1: Right. Well, let's uh, talk about uh, how the, well, the stuff that really matters uh, how our hospitals are coping with my next guest, Neil Dixon, who's chief executive of the NHS Confederation and very regularly joins us uh, on the show to discuss uh, how hospitals are, are doing. Good morning to you, Neil. Good morning. Good morning. Um, now, obviously, there are lots of uh, developments in terms of the, the death toll, 786 uh, extra deaths yesterday, taking our total death toll from coronavirus to 6,159. But we did see the infection numbers falling, despite the fact that we've now got more testing going on. But that death toll figure was the highest rise so far. However, it did follow um, 439 deaths on Monday, and again, not much higher over, on, on, on Sunday as well. Is there reason to believe that actually this higher death toll is just accumulation of some, um, some deaths that, that had not been basically registered at, on the administration level over the weekend and that actually it's, it's not as bad as it looks at first sight.
3: Well, I think the first thing to say is that one day's figures, as they say, you should never really take um, as being what is happening on the uh, the whole pattern. You have to look at the pattern as a whole. I think as people look at the the experts, look at the pattern as a whole, I would say there's um, a, a very, very small glimmer of hope. I don't think people want to say much more than that. It's certainly not accelerating. So hospitalizations and deaths, they're not accelerating at this kind of exponential rate, which was the big fear that it would overwhelm the NHS and also mean we were going to get overall a lot more deaths than we would otherwise get. So I think the suggestion is that social distancing appears and everybody's very tentative and not wishing to exaggerate or overstate it, but it looks as if social distancing is having an effect and that if things go as they appear to be going, and it's different in different parts of the country, that we will see a significant flattening off of the virus, and therefore the NHS should be able, with a, an awful lot of extra capacity that's been built in a very short period of time, should be able to uh, cope over the this next few weeks, which will be absolutely crucial. That will then raise questions about what do you do after that, which I think are a series of very difficult questions. But this first phase of can we avoid... You know, this massive peak where the NHS, in effect, falls over because it simply cannot cope with the numbers of very sick patients uh, coming on. It's not to say there aren't problems around the the system. Inevitably, there are. But I think we are in uh, a better position than I think many people thought we would be in uh, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, indeed. And again, this was the whole policy, the social distancing and then the lockdown deliberately brought in, obviously following in what's happened to France and Italy, Spain and elsewhere. Um, The the idea was to to, to give us a bit of a delay, get time for the NHS to build up their extra capacity. Only yesterday, the Nightingale uh, Hospital with a 4,000 bed capacity in the London Excel Centre received their very first patients. But we're talking about building up the number of of, of ventilators, getting NHS staff back, uh, uh, retired staff and and, uh, medical students in to actually build up that capacity so that when we did reach the peak we were able to cope with it are you then just to reiterate are you confident that or how confident are you perhaps i should ask that the nhs will be able to cope with the peak and we won't see the situation we've seen in italy where they are they haven't got enough beds they haven't got enough ventilators and doctors are forced to effectively choose who lives and who dies are we going to reach that point here in the uk
3: i'm more confident i'm probably more confident than i was, I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm listening to what the experts are saying. And, and certainly the evidence seems to suggest that we've now got a, a reasonable chance that we will avoid that situation. But again, we'll just have to watch what is happening with the... With the figures, we're looking, we we don't have a mass testing capacity, so we know exactly what the virus is doing. We're using, in a sense, proxy measures, which are, you know, hospitalisation rates and death rates. And, of course, both of those at different stages are delayed. They're, They're like looking up into the sky and seeing a star and you're seeing something that happened some time ago and the effect of it so but the the definite suggestion is that social distancing has started to work it's to do with the compliance of social distancing, not just the measures. So how compliant are we and if you get you know seventy five percent sort of compliance, then you start to um, the modeling suggests you start to have a very significant effect on the ability of the virus to spread, and that appears to be what what is what is happening but I don't want to exaggerate it and certainly the pressures within hospitals uh, some hospitals are really great not all so some will have built up a lot of extra capacity it's not yet being used Um, and there of course you have got the collateral damage of all this which is that patients who would otherwise be being treated are not being treated because we've Reverted to this emergency situation where we're concentrating yes. on that. and, and, and that's the a very big concern, say, Julia, though. Just one other yes, really important point. We talk all the time about hospitals. We really do have, and, and hospitals are absolutely vital. They are on the front line, and the staff are doing an amazing job. But there's also what is happening in the community, and I think that is probably where, at the moment, in care homes, in community services, your, your community nurses and the, all the other stuff and the GPs and all their teams Uh, All that area, I think, is, again, still feeling that it's it's being a bit neglected. A lot of people have a lot of fear. And I think that although the protective equipment is much better now, there are still concerns around that
1: yeah yeah indeed I mean, obviously we know one in ten care homes now uh, uh, seeing infections and the like but uh, this is the thing we, we are i think uh, incre- increasingly concerned at uh, you know how hospitals do cope, but particularly how they're coping with patients who are not reporting with covid nineteen uh, symptoms uh, this this i think frankly bizarre and and frankly immoral decision to for instance uh, stop some uh, cancer treatments and other operations which are, are more likely to save more lives over the years of young younger people with a better quality of life and more years ahead of them uh, than the efforts to save perhaps very elderly people whose lives absolutely matter. But If we're saving someone in their late 80s who's very, very, very sick already from coronavirus and and using some resources up, which otherwise would be able to go to somebody who's much younger, perhaps with young children who's suffering from cancer, that seems to me to be a wrong decision. Is there an element where there's a a sort of political urge to cut coronavirus deaths and we're somehow going to ignore all the other deaths that result as a result of us cutting other healthcare funding?
3: Well, I hope not. And I don't think that was the instruction. The instruction was that, you know, uh, I think there are two things. One is the instruction, as it were, and we are in a pretty command control type situation at the moment. But I think the instruction certainly was that anything that was urgent, essential style treatment should absolutely go on and that we shouldn't be. Um, reducing that and of course hospitals are still doing a significant amount of business as usual Um, whether you know in particular cases there inevitably I'm sure a wrong decision has been made in some cases but generally speaking it should be that uh, cancer doctors are able to continue to treat people who they urgently need need to treat I think the other problem we have and that is a sort of message to the public, which is that the the NHS is still open. It's not, it hasn't completely shut down. And that if you require urgent treatment, then absolutely you should, uh, you should seek that treatment uh, going forward. And again, you know, when this is all over, people will look back and say, did we do too much of this, too too little of that? I think that message that people who urgently need treatment should get it um, is one that is worth saying and repeating. And again, the,
1: again, yes. The
3: suggestion is we can we can cope if the figures go as we hope they are going to go over the next few weeks.
1: Okay. And just finally, Neil Dixon, um, are your NHS trusts that you represent to the Confederation are they able to get hold of the PPE, the personal protective equipment that we're told the country has loads of, but there's been a bit of a distribution problem? Have they all got what they need, the quality they need for all of their staff at all times?
3: So I think in the hospital sector, the message we're getting is that most of that seems to be okay now and secondly that the new guidance that was issued last week is, is a real improvement because it's clear it's supported by WHO it's supported by the Royal College it's supported by the Royal College of Nursing this, this is what so each just,
1: individual care NHS worker yeah, needs in, in, for in what specific location, patients What
2: you yes. should
3: wear because I think there were, people were concerned that they, they, the sort of lower level of PPE surely everybody should be wearing the higher level that is not the advice, that's not the World Health Organisation advice so using the right PPE in the right place is obviously important. But as I said earlier, I think the area where we still have real concerns, and this applies to PPE and other aspects as well, is we've got to make sure that we protect and enhance social care, community care and primary care, that's the the GP kind of style of uh, services in the community and those services I think still need uh, a lot of attention and there is still some concern coming out of them around uh, the, the PPE, the original protective equipment was a stockpile for frankly for NHS hospitals for an influenza epidemic and that has meant that most of the attention has been, and you might say rightly on hospitals, but we do need to do more and i think there is more being done but to get it right for those much smaller outfits uh, that absolutely need that protective equipment and need the advice and support across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker talk radio
1: Let's uh, talk about, uh, well, you know, what happens at the heart of government when a Prime Minister is incapacitated with someone who's been at the very heart of government for very many years as he served as Director of Communications for Tony Blair. Alistair Campbell joins us now. Good morning to you, Alistair. Hi there. Good morning. Um, now, um, there's a lot of talk, a lot of contrast in the papers today. I mean, the Guardian's particular power vacuum fears as Prime Minister remains in intensive care. Now, we know we don't have a presidential style of government like say, the Americans or the French. We do have a, a you know, a cabinet cabinet government and the Prime Minister is first among equals. How significant is it for a Prime Minister to be in hospital, he's not unconscious we understand, but to be uh, unable to take part in day-to-day government governmental decisions. How significant is that for the running of government as someone who's worked at the heart of government himself?
2: Well, it's hugely significant and it obviously adds to the, the difficulty and the complexity of a situation that's already difficult and complex enough. But it isn't impossible and I think that I think both government and media um, have kind of got to park the fact that, n- I mean, I understand why there's so, so much interest in Boris Johnson and his health, and it is a matter of legitimate public interest and concern, but there's there's nothing that we can do about it now. There's nothing that the government can do about it. There's nothing that the can do about it. They've got to, they have to now focus on the challenge that they've been given, which is actually to lead the country through this crisis and take any decisions that have to be made. And I think that um, the focus, Boris Johnson, understandable though it is, I think there's a real danger it becomes a distraction from from what they now have to do. I think that yesterday, fair enough, Dominic Raab wanted to pay tribute, he wanted to emphasise how much support Boris Johnson had, but I really think now they've got to they've got to step up and they've got to, they've got to kind of show leadership themselves. But uh, um, you know, they're going to. Show what they're made of, frankly.
1: Okay. Well, of course. I mean, we know there are lots of uh, big decisions to to be made. I mean, forget this whole "who's got their finger on the nuclear button." I think that is very much a distraction. But in terms of dealing with this national crisis, um, we were told when the lockdown was brought in, was announced on that Monday night, that in three weeks' time it will be reviewed. Now that's Easter Monday, uh, when that uh, that lockdown uh, is supposed to be reviewed. It was um, it it was made clear by Dominic Raab that they were not planning. Certainly, there was no plan to uh, you know uh, to, to to lessen the lockdown on, on Monday. But realistically, we look at work, the lockdowns we've seen in France, in Italy, in Spain, in everywhere else around Europe, there was never any likelihood, any chance whatsoever that a lockdown would last for only three weeks and would be relaxed after that, even if we did see, as we are hoping, the peak beginning to come down from next week.
2: Exactly. And I think that uh, you know that, 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 is, that is the truth, regardless of whether Boris Johnson is in or not. And so I think it would probably a good thing if I have made that clear to me that's unlikely. <clears throat> so I think that the, the big decisions that have to be taken, they're fairly obvious. They, they do have the, the a civil service in place that is pretty good at this kind of thing. I think the, I really hope that all the, the briefing that's been going on against the civil service and the jockeying between ministers, is just going to stop now. They've been given added responsibility and they've got to show that they can take it, simple as that.
1: Um, have, have we seen really that much, uh, you know, uh, battling between uh, civils? I mean, civil servants and the cabinet ministers. Oh look, we we know there will always be cabinet ministers who view themselves as you know more significant than others, and we know that there's been there have been some reports of issues between Matthew Hancock, uh, the uh, health secretary, and Michael Gove, the cabinet office minister. But it is quite clear, is it not? Given that the foreign secretary Dominic Robb, was appointed as first secretary of state, he is in charge at the current time, to the extent that Boris Johnson can't make those day-to-day decisions. And that's the end of the matter. We know who's in charge.
2: No, I uh, but I think at the weekend there was actually far too much um you know amongst the journalists who I think don't make things up. I think there was far too much of this minister thinks that minister's doing well and and I think there has been a habit um since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and during Theresa May's time as well where there is too often a tendency to blame the civil service, to blame officials and the it's just got to stop. So that's, I, I wouldn't overstate it, but I think, it's, I think this is the moment where people can, frankly, just focus on the task in hand, which is leading the country through this crisis. And, you know, I think that while Boris Johnson is, is in, in hospital, it's obviously a time a massive concern, especially, as Dominic Raab said, for his friends and colleagues. Forgive the dog, and the, the dog in the background. It's uh, concern for friends and colleagues, but for the country... Just to give you one example, we had another doctor die yesterday, We had hundreds more people die. You've got millions of families anxious. That has got to be their absolute focus and I agree with you that all this talk about whose fingers on the button and all this sort of it's a total distraction, and it shouldn't get in the way and I hope it won't and I also thought that you know that's I say. I don't you were you the one who threw in this thing about removing the media don't like him because he's Brexit I don't think that is relevant to this at all I don't think You
1: don't I I, I suspect I suspect that uh, that the, the disparaging of Dominic Robb yeah. uh, routinely in the media I suspect, suspect a lot of that is due to the fact that no, he has, is a leading Brexiteer let's,
2: let's just go back to when he was trying to be leader of the Conservative Party he didn't get anywhere and I th- I think that sometimes what happens is people put their own biases and, and prejudices into the, the debate. And I just think we've all got to park all that. I just don't think that is a factor okay. at all.
1: All right. Let's 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 talk about this this exit strategy, though. I mean, look, the reality is, although the government say they are being guided by uh, what the chief scientific advisor and the chief medical officer and their teams and all the other teams who advise them, Professor Neil Ferguson at Imperial College and many other teams putting together sort of uh, plans of action and, 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 and looking at what the numbers are telling us, the reality is it is going to be a political and to a certain extent a personal decision uh, by uh, the government, by the prime minister ultimately, um, in terms of how we exit this, in terms of the the, number, the, the risks we're willing to take, the, the, the death toll we're willing to accept, etc. And, and, and also, of course, we know from the lockdown there are issues in terms of the lockdown may end up long term causing a bigger recession that could cause more deaths in the long term than the actual lockdown would itself save uh, uh in terms of lives right now there are lots of decisions that aren't necessarily medical or scientific decisions they are actually fundamentally political decisions what factors do you think will be weighing most hard uh, for boris johnson and for dominic raab right now
2: well i think you're absolutely right i mean i, I and i do think i've had, i've had quite a few criticisms of the government strategy and I think it's right to say that you're following the medical and the scientific advice but I don't think there's been nearly enough sharing of that and I think sometimes they've used that as a cover for our fundamentally critical choices so if you if you think about it every government in the world is getting you know pretty much the same scientific and medical analysis but countries around the world are taking very very different decisions I've just today written a piece about Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. It's a very, very different approach. And OK, it's a smaller country, but it seems to be having an effect. You and I have talked before about the work that I do in the Balkans. The Prime Minister of Albania is taking a very different way, and that too seems to be having some effect. So these are political choices that people make, and I think the big one is the one that you allude to. It's in a sense, the longer this goes on, the harder it is to deploy a clear exit strategy that the whole country can can support and in the end I think the government is going to have to level people with people about the, the choices that we're going to have to face between if you like the acceptance of um, a considerable level, level of illness and suffering and indeed death and the continuing uh, persistent and enduring harm to the economy and, and people's livelihoods. They are the big factors and and that, that is going to be, when it comes, a very, very, very big decision. And how you manage that is not going to be straightforward. But I think that now that it's clear that Boris Johnson isn't able to, if, to function as an effective, uh, fully functioning Prime Minister, I think that clarity does actually, the public will give the government a bit of a leeway at the moment. And I think they should start being much more open about the decisions that they're having to take and about the okay. choices they're making and the science on which they're based.
1: OK, thank you very much. I'm Alistair Campbell, very much appreciate you joining us. He was the former Director of Communications, been at the heart of the government, at number 10, under Tony Blair. Across the
3: UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley-Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment, and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10.